Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, and I'm the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do something that I think is really important. In this sermon, I'm preaching on Jesus appearing to someone after he died and came back to life, and how that appearance changed the person's life forever. While I hope that all of my sermons are impactful, I think that this one can be particularly valuable because it shows how belief in Jesus, his death and resurrection, can change lives. It can bring peace from our inner struggles, reconciliation with our enemies, forgiveness from our guilt, purpose that goes beyond our circumstances and our lives, and life that goes beyond death. It brings hope to the hopeless, forgiveness to the guilty, and worship to the doubter. It's a big deal. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Can you think of someone that needs what belief in Jesus, his death and resurrection has to offer and share it with them? I know that that is kind of a big request, but belief in Jesus changed my life in such a wonderful and profound way, and I want others to have that same experience. I hope you're the same. I think, or at least hope, that this sermon can be used by God to make that happen. So please share it with someone. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I also hope it will be used by God to change the life of someone you know. Hey everybody, again. Um, uh, today I'm in, a, I'm in a good mood, the sun's shining. Seems like you're in a good mood. I don't want to ruin it, but I have to in these resurrection sermons kind of start in a bad place uh, a little bit. And so, uh, so forgive me for what I'm going to do, but uh, think about the like the worst like time in your life. Not the worst single moment, just the worst time in your life. And my guess is, give a second here, go, uh, that it lacked these three things that you completely lacked in these moments. You had a lot of bad emotions and feelings, but you, you probably lacked these three things, peace, joy, and purpose. I, I think with, with tragedy and in life's hardest moments, we lack these three things that are so, um, you know, there's, it's so inherent within us. It's so natural for us to, to just want these three things, peace, joy, and purpose. And in the bad moments of life, we, we really lack those, those things. And often, you know, it, it's uh, those things being taken from us in whatever capacity that makes us uh, really have those bad moments. That's what makes the hard moments is that something has stirred up a lack of peace, turmoil within us, and something is taken away uh, from us that created joy or something is taken from us that we found our purpose in. And that last one, I think that's, that's you know, very true. We don't think about that, but if we make our purpose something and then that thing disappears from our lives, then, then that's, that's a bad moment. Those are really bad moments. I felt like this right after graduating from college. I had been dating a girl. It didn't work out. I had basically spent my entire life focused on sports, and those had come to an end. And I was jobless. Um, for It's the only time in my life where I didn't have, as an adult, I didn't have a job for, for a few months. And, and I, there's like no reason to get out of bed. And I'd wake up from an utter lack of peace. Like I just would just... Like that every morning, you know that sound when you wake up and like it because of something weird, it's like like that. I'd wake up like that every day. I lacked joy, I lacked purpose, I lacked peace. And it was a really bad time, one of the worst times in my life when I look back on it. 
And today we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus, I told you I'd bring it around to the good, the resurrection of Jesus offers those three things to us in a profound and permanent way. So far, we've seen these appearances of Jesus after he's died and he's come back to life. We've seen these appearances of Jesus and we've seen that it turned denial into hope. And when I say hope there, I mean like wishful thinking. Um, And then we've seen that it turned hesitation into belief and devastation into dedication in the woman named Mary. And today we add to that and see that it brings peace, joy, and purpose. Here's how it starts in John chapter 20, verse 19. We read, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Uh, A quick note, this is still Easter, still takes place on Sunday. And so the story, while well, well, we kind of tell it in one day often in church, like here's the Easter story, we kind of talk about Jesus' resurrection. There's a lot going on on this day. I mean, the tomb is empty, the guys are running around, and then Jesus appears to Mary, and now Jesus is going to appear to his other disciples. But that's not what we read first. We read here that they're huddled together in a room with the door locked, scared for their lives. Now, this is despite the fact that Peter and the other disciple have already been to the tomb and it's empty. And it's despite the fact that Mary has encountered Jesus and come back to say, like, I've seen the Lord. And it's despite the fact that two other guys on the road to a city called Emmaus had encountered Jesus themselves, despite all of this evidence that Jesus has come back to life, these disciples are in this room, not just the 12 disciples, by the way, but the disciples, we don't know how many people are there, they're locked in this room, scared to death. It's like a a scary movie almost, like they're up there, they're just huddled together, like, and they're fearing for their very lives, and you're like, why? That's an important question. Why are they so scared that they're huddled together in a room secretly and have the doors locked? And the simple answer is the Jewish leaders. Uh, It's really easy to dismiss the fear of these men. Like, what are they so scared about? But they are scared because of what they've experienced. And we too would be scared in this moment. I mean, think about the journey that these people have been on. Some of them have spent up to three years hanging out with Jesus. They've spent all of their time with him. Literally, they left home and family and jobs to follow Jesus around and learn from Jesus and minister with Jesus. And so they served him. They ministered with him. They learned from him. They hung out with him. They witnessed the miracles. They heard the teaching. They were there, some of them for all of it. And then just a few days before this moment, that same Jesus that they had given their lives to was arrested He was tried once by the Jewish leaders. They condemned him. They took him to a Roman leader and said, we want this guy executed. He tried to set Jesus free, but they were not having it. And so they demanded, using political power, they demanded that Jesus be killed. And then these men and these women, they watched as Jesus was tortured and beaten and mocked and then nailed to a cross where he died. And these same leaders that were responsible for this, that were behind this, they're still out there. 
And they don't like what Jesus, and as a subsequent fact, his followers stand for and what they were trying to do and what they were trying to accomplish. And so what are they scared about? They're scared that they're going to experience what Jesus experienced, and none of them want to go through that. And so here they are, huddled in this room, doors locked, scared to death, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. Now, the locked door is a little detail that I think demonstrates two things, how scared they are, right? But also it demonstrates that this is a miraculous moment. The whole thing is meant to be miraculous. Jesus didn't just open the door and walk in. He somehow, some way, we don't know the details. Anybody that tries to tell you we know the details of all this is just kind of making things up. But somehow, some way, he just appears and he's standing right next to them. And notice what he says. Peace be with you. I want to talk about peace this morning, but first, I do want to again just talk about this supernatural event. It is, uh, it is very in line with uh, what theologians call a theophany or an appearance of God. And when this happens in the Bible, uh, God kind of appears to people, uh, supernatural event, there's this initial response of fear, and then there is a declaration that these people should not be scared. It's usually said like this, fear not in the Bible. And then out of that, there's a, like some kind of thing that's spoken, a job is given, a word to give to somebody else. This is normally how these things go. And that's exactly what's happening here. In John 20, 31, I want you to remember this. We read, but these Things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I say all that because the author of this book that's writing this thing down that we call John, this document we call John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to show you that Jesus was no mere man, that he was, in fact, divine. He was the Son of God who had come to set things right. And I've done this throughout every series in the book of John, but it's important that we see what we're reading here through this lens. And as John tells us this story of Jesus' supernatural entrance into this room, it looks a lot like God showing up and meeting with people. And the reason for that is it is God in human form, resurrected, showing up and meeting with people people and we don't want to miss that we do not as you read the entirety of the book of john if you go and you read the book of john after getting through this sermon all these sermons if you've been around since september you, you know we've gone all the way through this book almost i want you to have in your head that you need to read all of it through the lens of john saying to you look i'm telling you who this guy is he is the divine son of god who has come to make things right for you. And if, if you will believe in him, then he will save you from your sins. You can have life in his name. And so Jesus, standing there, the son of God, he says, peace be with you. Now, this is a standard greeting. I already said, fear not, really common. Um, but it sure seems here that there is more to it than just a standard greeting. This isn't just like 
hello or anything like that. And it's pretty clear as you move kind of through this story that it's meant to be seen that it's his very presence, the resurrected Christ's very presence that actually allows for these people and all people to do the very thing that he's calling them to do, to be at peace. It is his presence, it is a resurrected Christ's presence that allows for us to have the peace that he wants us to have. Now think about this. I mean, just see it through their lens, good night. I mean, they have no peace in this moment at all. I mean, they watched Jesus be killed and all that, and the last things they really did to him was either, I mean, not all of them did each of these things, but they denied Jesus or they abandoned Jesus. They rejected Jesus, and so they probably feel horrible guilt. There's no peace as far as like feeling good about themselves, and they're scared to death for their lives. They have exactly the opposite of whatever peace is. They have tons of turmoil, fear, doubt, struggle, pain, remorse, regret. That's what they're feeling. And here Jesus, he shows up and he says, peace be with you. And it is the fact that he's come back from the grave that allows for them to actually have the peace that he is declaring for them. I want you to consider this, this idea of peace. This word in Greek means peace or rest in contrast with strife or denoting the absence or end of strife. And I think often that's how we think of peace in American society. It's the absence of you know, war or the absence of struggle or the absence of fear. It's the absence of something. But remember, all of these men are Jewish and you may know this Hebrew word that's probably behind the meaning here, and that's shalom, very common Hebrew greeting, right? Shalom, and, and, and when Jewish people talk about peace, they're not just talking about the absence of something, but they're talking about the positive side of that word, a state of health or well-being. It denotes a state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being. It's the, the good feeling of peace, if you will. I don't know why, but I picture sitting on a beach. It's not just the absence of strife. It's, it's that there's something good happening within you. Things are, if I could say it, things are all right, and you know they're all right. And in this moment, what I think is meant to be understood is that these men, these women that are sitting in that room, huddled together, scared to death, feeling guilty, they can now, they can now be at peace because Jesus did not stay dead. They can be all right because Jesus did not stay dead. Leon Morris, who wrote a giant book about the letter of John says, when the world uses peace in a greeting, it expresses a hope. It can do no more. But Christ effectually gives people peace. Moreover, the peace of which he speaks is not dependent on outward circumstances, as is any peace the world gives must necessarily be. Leon Morris says that Jesus can make things all right in your soul even if everything is bad on the outside. Now, remember, the Jewish leaders that you know, may want these men dead, 
they're not going anywhere after this moment, right? Like these men's circumstances, these women's men and women, so I'm saying men because I think of the 12 disciples, was probably a giant group of, or a big group of men and women huddled in this room together. Like, like their circumstances don't get instantly better here. Like the things outside of them are not magically going to become all right. But in this moment, upon seeing Jesus resurrected, they can be all right inside, even when things are not all right on the outside. And so Jesus, back from the dead, shows up amongst them and says, peace be with you. I think peace and Jesus' offer of peace in his death and resurrection is a little bit underrated today. Like growing, I don't, maybe this is just unique to me again. I said that last week, but maybe this is a unique idea to me. But like, for me, we talk about love and we talk about grace, talk about forgiveness, talk about some of these things, but we don't often talk about peace. And what's fascinating, I just learned this studying for this sermon. Peace is included in the greeting of every New Testament epistle right next to grace. And so when you think about the death and resurrection of Jesus, you should think about grace, that God has gifted you so much. He's gifted you so much despite the fact that you don't deserve it through the work of Jesus. But you should also think about how the work that Jesus has done allows for you to be all right on the inside when not everything is all right on the outside. Every single greeting of the New Testament epistles includes grace and peace. We don't need to be scared or guilty feeling or troubled in our souls no matter what we face on the outside because Jesus came back from the dead. We don't need to have strife on the inside if we believe that Jesus died for our sins and came back from the dead. Now, I'd like to tell you that instantly they're all like, sweet, dude. They turned into surfers like, yeah, this is awesome. I got total peace. But they actually just went from scared to more scared in this moment, which you would too. Uh, Luke 24, 37 through 39, a different story of Jesus' life explains it this way. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Back to John 20, 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so it's exactly what you think would happen. I mean, you're, if you were like in a scary movie, right? Like picture a scary movie and you think, you know, that you're gonna get gotten and things are gonna go badly for you and you're huddled in a locked room and all of a sudden somebody says anything. I mean, they could have said hi and you would not be like, Oh, I feel better now. You'd be like, what is the, the door's locked? Like you locked the door, didn't you? And so they're, they're just more scared at first. They are more scared at first. And Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. And my, this is just the part of the resurrection appearances of Jesus that people kind of oscillate between recognizing Jesus and not recognizing Jesus. And, and here is this weird moment where like at first they're like, is it a ghost? And then Jesus says, look, my hands, my feet, it's really me. And notice, notice what happens when they recognize that it's actually him. They are over 
joy. They have joy. Now, Jesus declares, like, hey, be at peace, be at peace, and they get more scared. But when they see that Jesus actually came back from the dead, that's when they experience incredible joy. Jesus had promised this in John chapter 16, verse 20, at the farewell discourse, his final teaching to his disciples. It's the time he washed their feet and instituted this thing that we call communion. At that meal, Jesus said to them, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So Jesus promises that their grief is going to turn to joy. And at the time, they're like, I don't know why I'm going to grieve. You know, things don't seem that bad. And not only do I not know why I'm going to be grieved, I also don't know what's going to bring my joy. And now, a few chapters later in the book of John, we understand it. They grieved because they watched their Lord suffer and die. But they rejoiced because they saw him come back to life. Notice that it's when they saw the Lord. And the reality is for so many people that when they come to see, to experience, to know, to believe in the resurrected Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, when they come to see that, that's when they experience incredible joy. By the way, they use this term Lord, which can simply mean sir, um, but upon the resurrection of Jesus and throughout the New Testament, that word that can just kind of mean sir, it actually grows in theological importance. Uh, we see that Mary, after she calls him basically teacher upon first seeing him, she goes and reports that she's seen the Lord to these disciples that are now encountering Jesus themselves. And she uses the word Lord. There seems to be a development there. Here in this, the middle of this divine moment where the door is locked and they're huddled up. It says they saw the Lord. And then in a passage we'll look at next week, it says uh, this guy named Thomas, he's not there for this moment, by the way. He's, I don't know, out getting groceries or something. And, and he comes back and he doesn't believe him. And then Jesus appears again. I shouldn't give all this away. But then he says, well, let me see your hands and your feet. Jesus shows him hands and feet. He believes and then he worships and he says, my Lord and my God. And so upon the resurrection of Jesus, this word Lord takes on this meaning of like something bigger, the way we use it today. Like Jesus, for those of us who experience him, who believe in him for the forgiveness of sin, for our peace and our grace, we ought to treat him. He is, but we ought to treat him as the one who is to be obeyed. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the master of our lives, the one that we follow, the one that we obey, the one that we serve, the one that we worship. And we start to see that movement upon the resurrection. And in that recognition, they experience joy. They experience joy. I'll come back to that. Now, What's fascinating here is that um, well, last two years I've preached through biblical books and um, haven't always done that in my preaching time anywhere or at this church and I may not do it next year, but I taught through Romans last year and now I'm teaching through John. And one of the, one of the cool things about doing that is, um, and not so good on Wednesdays, but, like, uh, but good overall is that you, you kind of just have to like, come to passages and, and you don't just skip over them, right? Like that would be disingenuous. And so you come to things and you're like, 
well, I like the peace and the joy stuff, but what in the world does this mean? Or sometimes like, well, man, that's gonna be really awkward to talk about. But this one is just like a what? Like, it's more like a what and not like a, this is like, you know, I don't want to talk about that, but like, what is happening here? And that's one of these verses. So I'll do my best to give you a quick explanation. Here's what it says in verses 21 through 23. So we got peace and joy. Don't let those things leave your head. And then we read this. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. First, notice the repetition of peace be with you. The resurrection of Jesus is what brings peace. Leon Morris again says, it may not be fanciful to think of this peace thus emphasized as the peace that comes as a result of his death and resurrection. The link between his mission and theirs is emphasized. So Jesus again here says, I want you to have peace. And then he goes on to give them a mission. And and Leon Morris is saying that these two things are connected. When you experience the peace of Jesus, then you get on mission, a mission to do basically the things that he came to do, not in the same ways, but to do and follow in his footsteps with the purpose of your life. In other words, being sent here is connected to them having peace. Since I am giving you peace, I want you to go. Our peace is connected to the resurrection of Jesus and the peace that we have through that resurrection is connected to our mission. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But here it says this weird thing, that he breathes on them and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And it's a little bit tricky of a, of a, of a verse. Um, if you don't know, we believe that God, uh, the being that created, sustains all of life, that is all-powerful, all-knowing, able to be anywhere and everywhere, that that being is made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, in the way that you think about God, Jesus, who walked the earth, and the Holy Spirit, uh, this being that's more mysterious to us, but comes upon Christians when they become Christians. And, and the story that we get in the book of Acts is what makes this interesting. And this day that we call the day of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit comes and it's this crazy moment where there's tongues of fire and the church begins. And so it leads to this like kind of awkward, like what happened here in this moment? Like what's going on here? The Holy Spirit shows up in John chapter 20 when if you've grown up in church, if you read through the Bible, you're like, doesn't the Holy Spirit come in Acts chapter 2? And so would you, the question is like, is this the moment that these people were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that this new being comes upon them? Or is it later because Jesus has promised that it will? Now, if you're looking for like a really quick answer to that, I can't give you one. I read like too much, like probably it was like, okay, like I should have shut it down three paragraphs ago. Um, and it's a hotly debated topic as you could imagine not a very fun debated topic, but a hotly debated one nonetheless that most of you are like, I didn't care before you started this, but now you're in the middle of it, so give me some kind of answer, right? And the simple answer is this. It is clear here that Jesus breathing upon them and giving them the Holy Spirit in this moment is connected to the mission that he is sending them on. 
It's so connected, in fact, that some see it as just a symbolic act that he's saying, look, you need the Holy Spirit for the mission that I'm going to put you on. That's debated. Others would see it as like this moment, the Holy Spirit was given in order for this special purpose, but this isn't the final or, you know, like great coming of the Holy Spirit. So there's debate around this, but what I want you to see as we look at it today is that the Holy Spirit in this moment as mysterious as this moment is, is given, is breathed upon them, is talked about in order to say that Jesus is giving them the Spirit of God for a mission and for a purpose. I mean, this is what's happened here. I mentioned the word theophany, right? Here's this godly appearance. He shows up, don't be scared, and now he commissions them for something. That's how it goes. And here, in this moment, we see a moment that represents all of us. The Holy Spirit comes into the lives of every Christian, and we know it does several things. He encourages us. He reminds us of what God has called us to do. And I said this in a, uh, a few months ago in a sermon. He helps us to know the specifics uh, in our lives of how to be obedient to the general commands of Scripture. But he also the Holy Spirit's coming upon us, equips us to do the work that God wants us to do. Equips us to do the work that God wants us to do. Which brings us to the third thing that we see here in this resurrection appearance story. Jesus comes and it allows for them to have peace. They see Jesus and it brings them great joy. But Jesus also in his resurrected state gives them a new purpose. He says like, hey, you guys are now, you're my hands and your feet, to use a phrase from a different book in the Bible. You're my hands and your feet. And I'm giving you the Holy Spirit in order that you will continue the work that I have been doing, the work of loving and uh, offering salvation to people. Now, we don't give the salvation. It's Jesus that does, but we tell people about it. And so in this moment, I want you to see that Jesus offers purpose. And that is the point of the Holy Spirit breathing weird kind of moment. The reality for each and every one of us is that if you come to know the resurrected Christ, then you are given a new and better purpose. And we all need purpose, right? Like this is such a big deal because when we feel purposeless, we feel depressed and uh, hopeless and we struggle along, right? But when we know that we have a purpose, it's a really big deal and it excites us and it brings us passion and hope and we get out of bed with, you know, looking to do something. And here, Notice what he says next. It's really kind of weird, but he says this weird thing about like, if you forgive anyone their sins, then those sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And it almost as appears, and I think this is wrong, that he's saying like, you guys have the power to forgive and to not forgive. There's no good biblical evidence that that's the meaning here. I can give you a lot of reasons that that's not the meaning here. Um, one, there are probably more people than just the 12. So people who usually subscribe to this view, it's like, well, those 11 now 
apostles, they had the power to forgive, and then church leaders is an extension of that. But there's more disciples here probably in this moment than just these men who, you know, we know as the disciples. It goes against the New Testament as a whole. The anyone here is plural. And so it's not like you can forgive that guy. It's like if you forgive anyone in a plural sense of the world, it falls within the context of the Holy Spirit's coming. It's the passive voice demonstrating that it's actually God who forgives sins. I'm gonna quote Leon Morris one time. He was really helpful in this passage. He says this, if the church is really acting under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it will be found that her pronouncements in this matter do but reveal what has already been determined in heaven. And it's also important to say here, because this is what we do, that we need to teach the gospel in such a way that when people reject it, it's clear that their sins have not been forgiven. But when they accept it, what do we know? That their sins have been forgiven. And so again, this comes back to the mission that is given to all of us as Christians to follow in the line of Jesus and to do his work, to be his hands and his feet. I'll tell you, both our lives and our words should make clear the story of Jesus in such a way that people have to make a decision whether or not they're going to embrace Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins or not. We need not be wishy-washy on the issue. We need to be clear. There is a savior. His name is Jesus. He is the son of God who came to die for your sins and he did not stay dead. He came back from the dead. And if you will embrace him, your sins will be forgiven. And if you won't, then your sins will not be forgiven. And in that way, we do exactly what Jesus has said here. We make the gospel clear. We make the story of Jesus clear. And therefore, people should know by our words whether or not they have been forgiven or not. By the way, I read this somewhere, but I really liked it. There's also real power in telling people that their sins have been forgiven. And I think this is kind of missed in Christianity today. I know, and if you've been around for a long time, you know this is a, one of my talking points. I try not to have too many that just infect my sermons out of nowhere, but this is one of them. I just think there's too many Christians who walk around feeling guilty all the time. There is one reason that God gave us guilt, I believe, and that's to draw us to repentance. But when we repent of our sins, when we turn and go a different direction, we need not, we don't, we should not, we ought not feel guilty anymore for the things that we did, you know, last decade or whatever, because we have been forgiven. And so I want to say to you today that if you've accepted Jesus of your Savior, you've repented of your sins and asked him for forgiveness, then you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You don't need to carry that guilt anymore. And so here Jesus shows up and he offers through his resurrection, peace, joy, and purpose, peace, joy, and purpose. And I'll tell you, you'll never have a happy, fulfilling life unless you have peace, joy, and purpose. And you can find a little bit of peace and a little bit of joy and a little bit of purpose and a lot of things that aren't Jesus, but you will not find ultimate peace and ultimate joy and ultimate purpose anywhere but through this man, this savior named Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian, turn to Jesus. If he whispers in your ear, I'm here, then follow him, accept the gift of his death and resurrection for your forgiveness, and he will give you 
joy and peace and purpose that you never had before. But here, and I actually think that God wanted me to say this to all of us who are Christians today. Sometimes we forget the incredible peace and joy and purpose that we can have because of the resurrected Christ, because Jesus got out of the grave. And sometimes we get caught up in looking at all of the circumstances and forgetting about all that he has offered us by not staying dead. And so today, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a long time, you know, you can remember that first moment when you're like, oh, this is peace. And oh, this is joy. And oh, this is purpose. And I would, I would just say to you, I would remind you of that moment. And I would ask you and me and all of us to think about the incredible peace and the joy and the purpose that Jesus offered us, that he's given us. Because we, I mean, we sing about this, right? Like we can get our eyes squarely on the world, but when our eyes turn to Jesus, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so if you've been a Christian and you've just forgotten all about the incredible peace and joy and purpose that he's given you, turn your eyes to the resurrected Savior once again and find that peace, joy, and purpose. Our darkest days, our darkest days lack peace, joy, and purpose. But for Christians, no matter what we face, no matter what we deal with, no matter what we go through, no matter what we struggle with, no matter how mean people are to us, no matter how rich or poor we become, no matter how bad our days are, no matter how our health goes, none of that, none of that can take away our peace and our joy and our purpose if we follow Jesus because he came back from the dead. Let me pray that we'll have those things. Lord Jesus, I thank you for, for what you did for, for us and for me, Lord. And Lord, the last couple of years have been filled with lots of bad days. And, and God, like everybody, I've had moments, lots of moments of frustration and sadness and um, anxiety, Lord. But I know, God that those things would be magnified to the nth degree if I had not come to believe in you. And I thank you that even on my darkest, worst days, Lord, there is still a peace and a joy and a purpose that goes beyond all of my circumstances, that even goes beyond what I can really understand, Lord. And, and I ask that, that, God, for those who are out, have never encountered you, have never given their lives to you, who haven't become Christians, that right now in this moment, God, you would stand in the midst of their heart, Lord, and you would whisper, peace be with you, and they would embrace you as their Savior. They would believe that you died for their sins and that you came back from the dead, and they would enter into a relationship with you, Lord. And I pray for those of us, God, who have been a Christian, who have been Christians a long time, that you would bring us back, God, to your wonderful peace and joy and purpose. And we would, God, live with, with hearts of gratitude and even excitement, even on our worst days, because we know what you did for us and what it accomplished on our behalf. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.